Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. This episode of All Things is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the new book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West by Andrew Wilson. With dizzying social transformations we see today in everything from gender to social justice, it may seem like there's never been a more tumultuous period in history. But there was one year, 1776, that changed the social trajectory of the Western world as we know it. In Remaking the World, Andrew Wilson highlights seven major developments from the year 1776 and explains their relevance to social changes happening today. This thoroughly researched yet accessible book offers a unique historical perspective on modern views of the family, government, religion, and morality, giving Christians the historical lens they need to understand today's post-Christian trends and respond accordingly. This book will make for a great gift to pastors, scholars, and history lovers alike. Pick up a copy of Remaking the World wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org forward slash plus and get 30% off with your Crossway Plus account. We are actually going to speak with Andrew Wilson on today's podcast. Our goal here on All Things, as you know, is to examine current events and trends through a Christian lens. But as I've said so many times over the years on here, we can't fully understand where we are now if we don't understand where we've been. And we certainly can't anticipate or sort of design or have an impact on the future if we don't know our past and our present well. We are indeed a soundbite culture. We grab hold of nice sounding snippets and form deeply held opinions and views based off of a brief moment in time. I know I am certainly guilty of that myself. So it would serve us well to pause and take a look back, to think more deeply about where we came from and why we as a people think the way that we do or value what we value. And then to honestly acknowledge that a lot of our Western values, when you look across all of time and across the whole globe, are actually pretty unique. The things we champion are not necessarily championed by everyone everywhere, and they really never have been. And of course, as Christianity becomes increasingly marginal, at least in the Northern Hemisphere and here in the West, we Christians live more and more on the outside of society and popular culture and popular beliefs, we want to be ready to face that, not with worry and anxiety, but with a deeply held conviction, a solid understanding of why we are the way that we are. So let me share with you just a few data points as you think about the U.S. and the West being, in fact, increasingly post-Christian. According to Barna, only 21% of non-Christians in the U.S., think of the church in a positive way. So one in five of non-Christians think of the church positively. Half of non-Christians don't trust the pastors in their local community. And over half of those aged 22 to 36 think the local church is detached from the real issues people face. So not a glowing report from those who are outside the church, that's for sure. And inside the church, I wouldn't say we are super strong, at least in our commitment to one another on the whole. Of all who claim to be Christians in the U.S., just 44% attend church services at least weekly or more. But the church, on the other hand, is exploding in the Southern Hemisphere, which is really exciting. Currently, over 60% of the population in sub-Saharan Africa 
profess to be Christian. And by 2050, that region will likely be home to 40% of the professing Christian population throughout the whole world. So in the world of missions, where I spend a lot of time, we see more and more missionaries are coming from the global south to preach Christ in the increasingly lost global north. Andrew Wilson says he wrote Remaking the World to explain why the modern world is the way that it is, so the church can understand, serve, and love it better. I so appreciate his heart, not just to understand, not to just be informed and explain culture to us, but so that we might serve and love well. Andrew says there were seven major developments in the year 1776. Now, we Americans only think of our nation's birth when we hear that year, but alongside the American Revolution were things like globalization, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the Great Enrichment, the rise of post-Christianity, and the dawn of Romanticism. So huge events which relate to social changes happening right here, right now. So in other words, if you really want to understand today's headlines and make sense of the swiftly changing world around you, you need to go back at least a couple centuries, but honestly, really further than that. So I hope that this conversation with Andrew will begin to give us a historical lens that we need to understand today's post-Christian trends and respond accordingly. So without further delay, let's listen in to that conversation. Wilson, thank you so much for joining me today on All Things. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. It's brilliant to be with you. Can you go ahead and just introduce yourself really quick? You're coming from the UK on this podcast. Uh, Tell us where you're located, what you do in the UK, a little bit about yourself for the listeners who might not know who you are. Okay, so I'm 44 years old. I'm a teaching pastor of a church in London, um, which is a so sort of a, a reformed charismatic Pentecostal mixture in South London, which I love. And I have been there for about seven years. And before that, I was a pastor in Eastbourne, I'm, which is on the South Coast. I'm married with three children between the ages of 14 and seven. Um, I've been married to Rachel for just under 20 years. So, yeah. Wow. Okay, I'm 44 too, Andrew. We are the, oh, wow. the same. You, my word, you look a lot. This is that's shameful. You look a lot better for it than I do. So. <laughs> that's oh, no, so true. I'm on the back foot already. <laughs> I'm I'm going to turn 45 here quite soon, though, so I can't really claim 44 much longer. But that's funny that we're exactly the same age. Yeah, I'm September so, 29th. If that makes you feel better, so that's when you'll be 45. Yes. Okay, I am one month older, so I'll be turning at the end of August, so that's pretty funny. (laughs) Okay, well, Andrew, you are a believer, you're a pastor, you're a Christian in England. Um, Europe, I know, because I lived there as a missionary and church planter, is very post-Christian. So maybe tell us, first of all, how you met the Lord in England. Well, my parents both got they they got converted in the in the mid 1970s in a very um actually through a sort of they're from very non-christian backgrounds both both of them in the few days before they got married got converted separately from each other and then had to start their marriage working out what it meant to for them, each of them to be disciples and uh, and I arrived 4 years later and I was therefore was brought up with a, a actually very they they were thoroughly saved and it kind of permeated everything we did as as kids and so on um so i've i've had that a lot of them, that in my background um, and like a lot of people, I think probably, you know, you, I, I wandered a lot as a teenager, particularly in my early years at university, 
but came back to think I actually really do believe this and it really thoroughly changed my life I think in, at a personal level between the age of about 21 and 22 uh, when I did a gap year working for the church and have been very different since um, and obviously now I get to spend a lot of my time leading other people through on similar journeys which is which is a joy um, but yes in a sense it's probably I've never had a I didn't believe in God backstory that probably wasn't mm. where I was coming from mm. I mean praise God for your parents coming to faith right before you were born I I don't know if we appreciate quite as much in the U.S. We are increasingly, but that is a rare story, especially in Europe and other parts of the world. So yeah, it is. You, you're, you're often yeah. one of the only believers in your, you know, class, or you know, maybe the only believer in your class or your school or your year at university or whatever like that. There's a, a handful of others, but it's it's very it's very much a minority. It'd be more, I guess, parts of the states are very are similar. Um, be mm-hmm. be more similar to what it would feel like in New York or San Francisco or places like Boston, maybe. Um, but but most much of America, I, I know, is still more Christian, which is you know partly connected, obviously, to the projects I've, I've been working on. Um, yes, yeah. Culture. Let's talk. Let's turn to that project because it is a massive project. You have a brand new book called "Remaking the World: How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West." And I feel like even just saying that title, we could go a hundred different directions. Given that I'm an American <laughs> and you're a Brit. <laughs> So let's um, let me first ask you this: as a pastor, as a believer in a vastly post-Christian country, why do you care about history? Why did you pursue this massive project? Why bother with where we've come from? Yeah, so I think origin stories, even in the movies, right? Origin stories are a, are a way of trying to orient yourself. Um, to make sense of your current moment because they give you a sense of context that you, you, you simply, you know, if you know the present, but you don't know the future, none of us do. And so by knowing the past, you can make more sense of the present moment and understand why trends are what they are. And particularly I find as a pastor, you can equip others. And that's what I hope to do in this book to understand their current cultural moment, not just as a simple slice of time that the reader has experienced, but as the, as, the, as a piece of, a culmination of, a longer story, which helps understand why the some of the cultural developments they're experiencing are not as sudden and as alienating and as confusing or disorienting as they initially seem, and in fact make some kind of sense within a larger narrative. And I think that enables us to do two things. I think it enables us to be less worried by the cultural trends. So I think particularly in between, say, 2014 and 2017, a three-year slice from, say, the beginning of the the Black Lives Matter movement to the start of the Me Too movement and all that happened in between politically was a very, very disorienting time for people on both sides of the Atlantic. People who were, whatever they were coming from politically, were going, whoa, well, this is just very sudden, lots of change. And by giving that as part of a story that lasts 30 years or even 300 years, you can equip people to make more sense of what's going on. So they don't feel nervous about it and worried and they go, oh, okay, that's why. And I think the other thing it helps with is it helps you make sense of why people who have a very different take on what's going on have a different version of the story to you, uh, which is particularly important for Christians where Christianity is moving from the cultural centre to the cultural margins, because otherwise it's very easy to think this is basically we are, there are good people and there are bad people and my views, right? And actually to, to engage within a culture where lots of versions of that story are being told History really helps because it said, oh, the reason why you do things this way has come from here. And that might be right. But actually, the reason why this other thing is taking place, it's shaping you more than you realize. And the way you frame the issues has been because you're living as part of a story that's been going on long before you were, you were here. 
And so I find for those two reasons, it can help equip people just not to be on the, on edge, I guess, and not to be divisive and, and not to be as um, anxious about what's taking place around them. That's the hope, anyway. Yeah, I think pastorally that is so helpful because I could not agree more. We moved back to the U.S. in 2000, uh, let's see, 15, after being overseas for 15 years. Uh, we, oh, right, wow. I guess it was right before, right as 2016 was beginning. And yes. we experienced exactly what you said. It was very disorienting moving back to the United States at that time. And I have sensed an incredible amount of anxiety and within our church. And I'm sure for you as a pastor, there is just a, it feels like and a new level of anxiety and uncertainty. And so I appreciate that you're addressing that and saying there really is nothing new under the sun. This is the outworking of where we've been going for the past several hundred years, if not millennia, last two millennia. So um, yeah, I appreciate you couching it that way that, that this look at history is going to be useful and that it's going to bring us some sort of calm and understanding and then help us get to where we want to go. Um, yeah, but one thing you say, one thing you say in the book, and you just sort of alluded to it here, we in the West, and maybe you could also define West for us, but we in the West, I think, at least I'm certainly guilty of this, tend to think, well, everyone is this way. Everybody has these values. Um, of course, these things are self-evident, as you point out. So could you unpack that a little bit for us? Are we, are we weird in the West? Are we different? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, but it's a good question about West. I, by West, I, I generally use that term to mean the, 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 the result of what used to be the Western Catholic Church. That if, if there's reasons for that historically, that I think that's a good way of thinking about it. So, in other words, the Western Europe and the nations that were eventually colonized by Western Europeans have a distinct set of values and frameworks which are not shared by most so by the other one billion people other other sorry there's one uh, one billion of us or maybe a little more and then the other six billion people or seven billion people on earth don't share some of those values and they do others and some of them take very different takes and that is quite a significant divide we are very much in the minority and i, I use as you know I, I use the acronym weirder to describe some of those distinctives that western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, ex-Christian and romantic. And so that actually there, there are historic reasons behind all seven of those developments and they don't have to come as a package, but in our case they do. And that it's worth understanding both that they are there and that they are not innate at all. And that there are lots of important reasons to emphasize that actually, because if you don't, you, you tend to think that everyone, every human being knows that democratic government is a good thing or whatever and then you have the what you know the 9-11 wars which are basically no lots of people don't and if you assume they will you can end up in a right well we would say a right pickle i don't know what the equivalent would be in american english <laughs> um and similarly you can assume you can take it for granted that a, a secular outlet the separation of church and state is innately a, is an obviously a good thing the vast majority of human beings don't believe that don't believe they're not individualistic like we are they're not they wouldn't have a romantic view of discovering your inner self within and then projecting it out into the world. They obviously haven't been shaped in the same way by Christianity over such a long period. So there's all sorts of ways in which the world we are in now is is distinctive to us. And it's important to understand both that that is true and why that is true. If we're to engage in an increasingly kind of multicultural, diverse, pluralist world, and even just to understand, partly for gratitude, actually, to say, oh, this is what God has done in this group of people. It doesn't mean they're right, but this is our story. 
but it is increasingly a, a minority story and it's worth understanding why that's true at a global level and also how what implications it might have for us living in a pluralist society which both of us do in different ways sure yeah you make the point you just said that it's increasingly a minority we as we you are you're ahead of us in europe in terms of being coming post-Christian and increasingly secular. Um, but I often hear historians, authors, thinkers say the U.S. is maybe a decade or two or three behind you. And what we're seeing unfold in England or um, on the continent is what's going to happen here. How ought Christians think about that? If, if we are increasingly a minority, um, if we are more and more, you know, if, if Christian thinking is, is going to be less and less pervasive in the public square, should we approach that with fear, concern? Should we be clenching our fists, holding on tightly? How, how do you um, view that for your family and for your church? Yes, I, I think it's a really, really important question. And I, I, to a degree, I want to be careful not to overreach with my application because I'm, I'm not an American and I've spent a, a bunch of time there, but it isn't my home. And I don't know how I'd feel if it were. I, I also don't think it's quite true to say that America is just three decades behind, almost like a linear thing. What's happened in Europe will happen here. I think in many ways, America, it maps onto Europe rather than mapping onto, say, Britain. It's it's so large and it's so diverse that actually in some areas of America, you'd feel it is just it's every bit as post-Christian in parts of the states that I visited. As I mentioned earlier, in the eastern seaboard and places, it, it's every bit as secular as it is in Europe. And in some ways, because of the temperature of political debates, it's even, it seems like it's even more anti Christian than than parts of you know, the part of Europe where I come from, whereas in others it might be it might never get there or it might be seventy years later. So I just think there's a dynamic in the nation which needs to be factored in. But I think in main, a major reason why I'm I'm both right and talk about this stuff is because I I think it's the opposite of what you've just said. I I don't want anxiety. It's exactly what you say. I don't want people to feel worried about it. I think I I don't think there's an inevitability to the trajectory. I think it's quite contingent how it, in the way it happens in America and Europe are distinct and impo in important ways. Um, but I do think that having, in some ways, it can, there can be encouragement for American readers, listeners, that the fact that Christianity get, moves increasingly to the margins of a society need not necessarily mean that the church is floundering or collapsing. or in place. It probably means the number of people who go to church on Sunday is diminishing and may well continue to diminish. And that, that is at a sociological level, what you would probably predict for the nation as a whole in your country. And that's there's something of a turning point about 15, 20 years ago in that regard. And that but but that could really freak people out. And then you step across and say, well, that in many ways, the, you're seeing something squished, concertinaed, if you like, that's taken more like 70 or 80 years in Europe. Um, and and it doesn't mean the church dies a, a slow, horrible death. It might mean there are fewer people going to church, and it might mean that the church's evangelistic efforts have to be more distinct from the culture than they have been. It almost certainly means you have to get used to having less political clout, and sometimes in the public square, you have to conduct yourself differently because the assumptions uh, in the nation are different, and that is very obvious, obviously, to anyone seeing the development even in our adult lifetimes over the last 30 years in, in your country. But I, I think there's plenty of hope to draw from it, too, because I think what it can do is make the, the if you could, like the prophetic witness of the church, the, the, the clarity of the church, the distinctiveness of the church sharper without leading to complete um, chaos in the public square either. The church can speak with clarity and boldness. 
And in some ways, there's a, a winnowing effect that happens that a lot of nominalism gets shaken out of the church because it isn't a popular place to be. And so if people are going to be there, it's because they really believe it. And the people who come to my church on Sunday are pretty much all, they're not doing it to be the cool kids. It just isn't like that. And as a result, there can be a healthy offshoot for the church. It's it's still hard, I think, for people, particularly when it's happening very quickly, as it is in your nation at the moment, to adjust to it. But I think, as I say, telling that longer story can help us even make sense of that. Yes, I wanted to say amen so many times um, as you were responding, um, especially <laughs> watching on to... You'd be very welcome to interrupt as many times as you can with amen. <laughs> no, no, I just think it's so useful. I mean, one thing you said in particular is we're going to have to get used to having less political clout. And I think that is something that has sort of happened really quickly, as you say, sort of since 2014, is maybe some of our very assumed morals or what we would all have said maybe 10 years ago is good and right and true. Um, those things feel like they're really up for grabs. And so we have this tension in the church then, I think, um, that there are Christians who say, no, we need to continue grabbing political power and in imposing or uh, voting in these Christian morals. And, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, but then we also have Christians who are saying, no, we need, you know, we have to give it up there. We have to lay ourselves down. There's not a way to continue having political clout. And it's just a really interesting tension, especially in my circles right now, you know, how we handle ourselves politically um, and how our faith intersects with that. But as you point out in the book, remaking the world, we're not the first Christians to endure this setting. We're not, we're, we're not the first believers in history to have to figure out how to navigate um, a, a culture and a society that is maybe in tension with our faith. Yeah. And you point specifically to 1776. So let's turn to that year now. And again, we're not going to be able to even you know, really scratch the surface of everything you talk about in that monumental year. Um, but maybe let's go there and maybe start with the church in 1776 and the other things that you have um, shown in history to be taking place that year um, and how that sort of birthed a, a new nation and, and where we are right now. Yeah, so the, 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 big, the big chunk of the story for me is because it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating year, obviously, in, in, in your nation, everyone would know what's going on politically and, um, and, and some of the, the ideas that are being bandied around. But it's a it's a massive year. Leap forward technologically, the invention of the steam engine, the publication of the wealth of nations, an economic transformation, which means that if you look at the history of the human race and look at the wealth with GDP per person over time, you would find that kind of the inflection point on the hockey stick was roughly the middle of the 1770s. You'd see its implications for arts and music in the development of romanticism. You'd see the first, you know, in some ways going public of a very robust critique of Christian influence, people like Voltaire and Diderot and Edward Gibbon and David Hume, and obviously in the in the States as well. Um, and you'd see all and you see globalization taking place, Captain Cook's voyages and all this. And so I basically tell those seven stories really of all of those different movements happening at once, enlightenment, industrialization, and so on. And to try and say this is this is a real key year, not just in the way you know it to be, but in many other ways as well, that begins to turn us into the world we know now and try and trace those deeper movements uh, back through the centuries but what i then did what i thought would be an interesting thing to do is then say so how does the church at this point like that that's the much of the book is telling that story i've just summarized but the interesting thing is as you say that the church at the time 
is it's also a very significant formative period for what we would now think of as broadly evangelical, whether people own the label or not, kinds of churches. When it comes to, so for instance, we would almost all sing hymns that were written in the 1770s in ways that we wouldn't necessarily sing hymns that were written in the 1670s, and probably more, and there might be more influential than plenty of hymns written in the 1870s, actually. Um, and lots, particularly with a very strong emphasis on, on grace and the hymns of John Newton and William Cooper and the Wesleys and John Berridge. And I want to talk, so I talk quite a bit about people like that and the way that they discovered the, the experience of grace, the transformative power of grace, which is connected to some of those other developments of individualism and experience and sentiment and things which were taking place at the time. So actually, our, the way we understand what the gospel is, the way we talk about it is very shaped by that period. At the same time, it's a very important period in the story of abolitionism and both religious freedom and freedom from slavery. And then in that context, what we also find is that the church is experiencing a lot of change as well. And it's really quite foundational for a lot of what we now think of as evangelicalism, uh, whether we would own the label or not, because the evangelical, the church in general in, in the West is, is coming through a, quite a lot of changes that are really formative for the way we would think, act, sing, pray now. Um, three examples I draw out in the book. One is the way that we begin to talk about grace, the way that the, the hymns that we sing, the John Berridge and Charles, John, you know, Charles Wesley and John Newton and William Cooper and many of these writers, even just in England, Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages was written in 1776. The only hymns are being written. The Wesleys are compiling their, their hymn books. John Berridge is writing science songs. And these very, this very even people who aren't hymn writers, actually, um, I talk about Ola Uda Equiano, who's an amazing man, in, in again, abolitionist in Britain, but originally uh, captured in off what's now Nigeria and enslaved. But he, he then becomes a prominent abolitionist, but describes his experience of salvation in this very personal darkness to light, really, uh, grace saved a wretch like me, I once was blind, now I see. And a lot of those hymns really shape the way that we talk about grace now. Church has always believed in it, but it's a much more sort of personal utterly transformative agents in the in the language of a lot of these hymn writers and that's related to the wider cultural changes that are happening the the individualism the romanticism of things like that which are coloring the way our hymnody works and it's really a, a powerful response to say this personal kind of transformation is open to everybody and it's a radically powerful message in a modernizing kind of culture still a very grace is massively appealing message today um there's also the emphasis on freedom through the freedom of religion, which obviously is a lot happening in the States, and abolitionism, which is much more happening in, uh, particularly in, in, in Britain at this stage. And again, talk about a whole lot of developments there, both within people, formerly enslaved people, and amongst increasingly in, in the British scene, at least, among evangelicals and obviously in North America with the, the Quakers. And um, that there's sort of quite a strong emphasis on the need for freedom, both religious freedom and freedom from slavery. And the oddity, of course, historically, is that those two don't line up. And so you get one, but not the other in Europe, and the other one, but not the other in North America. But it's quite interesting to see how that, which now we, we take for granted as, of course, Christianity is emancipating, it's freeing, it's liberating. A really important idea. And then finally on truth, and just look at the way that the church um, began some of its sharpest thinkers, and particularly a man almost no one has ever heard of in the English-speaking world, but an absolutely brilliant philosopher called Johann Georg Harman, who was a friend of Immanuel Kant and provided a radical critique of the Enlightenment, again, from Christian principles, saying this is just, and he was hailed as a genius by 
you know, pretty much everybody of note at the time, Goethe, Hegel, Kierkegaard, they all thought he was a brilliant man. And he was writing from a very Christian perspective, saying, you just, you've got the wrong foundation for your thinking about knowledge and truth. And ultimately, those things are united in Christ in a way you haven't seen. And so in those three ways, at least, the the church is beginning to make a, a, a pretty robust response to the developments into the weirder or the what we now call the modern world that's happening at the time. And I think it's very significant for us as a church today to go, oh, why did they do that? And what can we learn and draw from those responses to this process? Mm-hmm. Wow. I love to just ponder the reality that grace is always so powerful and timeless. And it's always the kindness and the mercy and the grace of the Lord that draws us back to him and allows us to be rooted. That is a sweet theme and to, and to yeah. sort of have um, to flee chronological snobbery and think that that's something new. That's that's something that um, we have sort of grasped onto when in fact our ancestors in the faith have done so um, for the last 2000 years. Andrew, something that I ponder, you know, as a um, thinker about cultural trends and current events, something that I often ponder is, are we the better for it? Are we the better for globalization? Are we the better for industrialization? These things that, as you have said in our conversation, we really take for granted. Um, is it is it all a net gain, or would we be better off uh, several hundred years back, living on a plot of land with our our extended families and and working the land and being rooted in every sense of the word locally? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I'm afraid I give the very squishy, would-be academic-y kind of answer, which is, well, it's ambivalent, it's this, there's good bits and bad bits. And I just think that it's obviously true, isn't it? I mean, so take, for instance, wealth. So you you would think it might seem very obvious that we were in a far better place if everyone's richer, or the average person in the world is much richer now than we're 300 years ago or 3,000. Therefore, that's a net gain. And, And obviously, in certain ways, it clearly is. The line people often say, nobody wants to be treated by a pre-modern dentist. You know, there are lots of things about my life and yours that are immeasurably more comfortable than they would have been. But there are plenty of substantial losses as well to the sense of community and history and obviously religious faith, which, as you might say, if if the culture secularizes as it becomes wealthier, is wealth a gain to to a Bible-believing Christian? Is is it better or worse? Well, you read the teachings of Jesus, you'd say it's harder to enter the kingdom if you're rich. And that does seem to be borne out by the last 300 years worth of progress in quotes in the West. So, but at the same time, I don't want to take people back because I think that's meant life expectancy is longer and, you know, doubled and doubled or more. People live far more comfortable lives. You're far less likely to have to to lose a child. Um, You know, there's many, many things that, you know, death rates for women, death rates, and obviously, and for men, um, congenital diseases i mean just so many people are in much less pain and you think well that's a good thing but it is also balanced by some some significant losses as well and not only for christians i think benny would say happiness doesn't necessarily go up in proportion to wealth either and in some nations the inequality has increased and as a result unhappiness has increased as well death and despair have gone up suicide has gone i mean it's all those sorts of things you think wow okay so it is complicated i mean i think at a personal level i would rather live now um but that might be a very you know, squishy middle class British thing to say. But I think the part of the point of, of telling the story in a way is to try and un- disentangle the the really and say, say providence in the end. If you be- have a belief that God is 
God ordains things, God is in control, ultimately, however you understand that control over history, then you're going to conclude, okay, ultimately, God God has allowed this or permitted or ordained this to take place in the way that it has. And so we're going to have to live with where we are now and not feel either nostalgic or contemptuous of previous generations. But I don't claim that that's an easy dynamic to hold. Um, so I think it, the answer is a bit of both. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's it's tempting when looking at a specific um, maybe data point, for example, suicide or mental health. It's, it, I find myself in those moments to think, well, we, it's really too bad we didn't we can't go back or we didn't think of the implications of these things, modernization, when they took place and there's, and there's no going back and isn't that a shame. But as you say, there's something to be said for the comforts um, and the health that we enjoy now. So I think your squishy answer honestly is appropriate because you have to consider so many different things and um, there really isn't one one easy way to answer that. Well, let me ask you just a couple sort of um, maybe easier to answer questions before we wrap it up and we end with a final sort of gospel question that I want to ask you. One, as a writer and someone in ministry, I'm just curious, Andrew, how you did this much much research. How long? did Has this been a lifelong project for you? Did you take all 44 years to get ready to write this book? Because there's so much here and I just don't know how I, you did it. Well, the timing, was, the timing was good in a way because I started work on this at the start of about three months into the first lockdown. Hmm. And obviously where you live in the States, this all varied how much you were locked down. We were locked down a lot here and there was not much you could do really for quite a long time. So I had a lot of time for the actual research specifically for the book. And then lots of it is obviously drawing on things I'd read over a previous 10 years or so. I'm also, it's probably worth saying, I'm, I'm my job is teaching pastor, but I'm not, I don't have to preach. A lot of people in the States, it's quite common to preach 40, 45 Sundays a year. And I don't, I preach about 20 Sundays a year and I don't leave my church either. So we have a, a team and, as, and it's quite a large church. So I've actually, they give me about half the time to do other things so, and a bunch of that time is used for this so yeah i i i did read a lot i really enjoyed it i love that kind of thing um and and find it a fascinating story to tell but yeah it probably took it was the most of what i was thinking about for about two years probably Okay. Well, two years is still pretty short to gather this much together, but it, it is so fascinating. And I think anybody who's drawn to, I don't know, history, geography, philosophy, just th this is kind of a book for everybody who um, wants to zoom out and sort of get the big picture of why we are the way that we are and where well, we are today. Um, one other thing, Andrew, I'd love for you to tell us where people can keep up with you and hear from you because um, as I was preparing for our conversation and just be having um, run into your books and um, sermons and things like that in the past, I know that you speak into so many different areas. Um, you know, recently you spoke about gun control on the Gospel Coalition. Um, I, I found a, um, a message that you gave about gender roles in the church that I listened to a couple days ago, which I found really helpful tied to industrialization for those who might be curious about it. I can link that in the show notes, but it was really interesting. Um, but all that to say, you talk about so many different things, you know, you really span the spectrum, which I love because that's, you know, I, I like to dip into all those things too. What are you, what are you really enjoying talking and writing about right now? And where can people hear the latest or or find what you've written? Well, that's um, very kind of you. So I, I do. I have the. I guess the normal channels. Are, so I'm on. I'm on Twitter. Um, so my Twitter handle is AJW Theology. I do have a blog which I contribute to a bit less than I used to, or quite a lot less than I used to, but I still post there on ThinkTheology.co.uk. And I'm as main, main mostly it's preaching and the conferences and things I run um, through King's Church London, which is my home church, and. 
So, and that's why I think, as you say, pastors have to speak. You do have to speak about everything because people in your church are going, what do I, what should I believe about? Yeah. As you said, men and women, or what, what do I believe about tr- the transformation that's taking place and the gender, you know, understanding how do, what do you think about sexuality, but also what do you think about politics or what do you think about sometimes just Matthew's gospel or whatever. So, um, but yeah, so the church is where most of this stuff would happen, but that's really kind of you. I often pop up at TGC and Christianity today. I have a column there as well. So, but Twitter's my main, well, as long as it is still Twitter, maybe it's now, we're not supposed to call it. Right. Anymore, you know. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it's called. Um, at the time of communicating, it was still known as Twitter. Who knows what it'll be by the time this goes out. But, um, so that's, that's the main way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for um, doing the hard work of speaking into all those spaces. It's not easy. It's a, it's a scary world out there sometimes. And so it's nice to have a grace centered voices um, speaking into that. So with that, can you close us out? I'd like to close every episode with just a, a sense of gospel hope. Um, I think we get that from your book, Remaking the World. Um, but for the listener who maybe sort of has had eyes opened to the weightiness of current events that have been birthed out of centuries of um, just formation for us as a Western people. What would be your parting word of, of gospel hope and, and where we can just root ourselves in this cultural yeah. moment? Oh, that's a great question to finish. I think for me, it would be with grace. And I think it would be with seeing the way in which the modern world that we live in now um, amplifies our desire for grace in in the culture as a whole in a number of ways. I think it we are because of factors like individualism and the way in which our economy functions and the way in which people derive status and identity, so products of romanticism and enrichment and democracy, which is a very individualistic thing in the end. What happens is human beings have to kind of construct their own identity and they have to work hard to become something, identify their truest self, and then work very hard to feel like they've justified their existence to put it out there either to get others to recognize their identity or to feel like they've discharged their obligations that come to them through the privileges they've been given and my guess is that many listening to this would feel like i'm a relatively privileged person because of the kind of conversation we're having um the way we derive status in the modern world again is very much based on what we have achieved and what we've done and you have to in a way that previous generations didn't worry about in the same way because for other you know it might not have been very good but you're a peasant and that's because your father was a peasant and lump it you know but you don't worry about these things whereas in the modern world people are very aware of the need to project out who they are and to justify be justified by works in a sense um and i find that the message of grace the sort of reassurance that identity is given that status is given in christ is given by being incorporated into someone else who carries the can for you and so it's not just about jesus covering of course your sin it's also about jesus covering the the inadequacy you feel or the fact you feel have I done enough it's that question at the end of Hamilton you know have I done enough will they tell my story it's like Christians don't have to if we understand the gospel we don't have to worry about that because the question isn't have I done enough it's has Jesus done enough and the answer to that is always a glorious yes so for me grace is such a beautiful it, it's it's the answer that fits the problems that the modern world continues to ask albeit not in the what must I do to be saved way often my, that's not what many of my unbelieving friends and family ask but how do I know that I've lived the, the Saving Private Ryan question? Tell me, tell me I've lived a good, led a good life. Like, have I, have I lived up to what you've done for me? And of course, Christians say that that's just not how Christians understand the question. The question is, has Jesus done enough? And the answer is always yes and amen. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for those parting words. And thanks for joining us today on All Things. Thank you so much. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All Things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.